good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday or whatever day you may be consuming this. We are broadcasting it on Tuesday, so that's why I say it that way. It's been an interesting weekend of football in the NFL. I think the NFL survived its first big COVID weekend. When we spoke last week, we talked about what was going on with the Steelers, what was going on with the Titans, the positive tests. Over the weekend, we found out that Cam Newton then tested positive for the New England Patriots. There was some doubt as to whether or not the Patriots-Chiefs game was going to be able to be played. They moved that back, created a doubleheader last night, Monday night. The Patriots need Cam Newton to get back healthy as soon as possible. Brian Hoyer simply isn't the answer. Jared Stidham looked okay at times. Looked like a young quarterback, though, which, frankly, he is. So it's interesting to see how the NFL reacted. And, again, I think they passed their first test because when an outbreak happens, and Major League Baseball had this happen as well, when it happens – I think our reaction now, based on the country, has been, we got to shut it down. Everything's got to stop. And the NFL didn't do that. They, they shut down the teams that were, in, that were affected, the Titans and the Vikings, found out that the Vikings were fine, no positive tests there, opened them back up, kept the Titans locked down. The Steelers were a victim of circumstance, if you will. For the Chiefs, they tested, 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 found out that Cam Newton was the only one, and they allowed that game to go on. And I think, again, the lack of panic, and I'm going to give Roger Goodell, a guy I don't necessarily like a whole lot, I'm going to give him some credit here because I thought the way this was handled, this is the first big test, the first time you encounter something. And oftentimes you can plan for something, but when push comes to shove and you've got to deal with it, do you have the rational thought to, to take a breath, make sure you got your ducks in a row, and get everything right? And I thought they did. And as of now, again this morning, there were no more positive tests in Tennessee. Looks like Bill's Titans will go on this Sunday. This, the facility in Tennessee should reopen again tomorrow. Now, remember, pushing that game back to Monday or Tuesday, which is a possibility, would be a weird thing for the NFL because the Bills' Chiefs is scheduled for the following Thursday. So that would have to be pushed back to Sunday as well, meaning no Thursday night football, meaning one of the big donors, the NFL TV partners, would not get their teams or would not get their game to broadcast. And a marquee game at that with the Bills and Chiefs right now both being undefeated. So a lot of dominoes that needed to fall, a lot of things that needed to be handled. I give the NFL credit for the way they've done things. I give the NFL credit for not panicking and handling things, in my opinion, the proper way. So it's it's good to see that this happened early, and it's good to see that the NFL is ready to deal with things that they need to deal with. So good stuff all the way around as far as the NFL's reaction to what happened. Now, on the field, I'm going to start, obviously, with the Buffalo Bills. And 
you know, Sunday was a game that I didn't take like lightly for the Bills. Going out to Vegas, road game. Look, it's different if we're not in COVID. You know, we're we're going to have seventy thousand Raider fans, maybe fifty thousand Raider fans, twenty thousand Bills fans. Still, hostile environment. You've got the energy of Vegas as a distraction potentially. You've got all these things into this road trip under normal circumstances. Now, without that, it's much less of a difficult thing. You you saw Josh Allen using some hard counts and getting the Raiders offside. So that doesn't happen in a traditional road game with fans screaming. You just don't have that ability to be that inflective and that loud and that effective, if you will, with the voice. But Allen was able to do it. And Josh Allen is, again, the biggest part of the story, in my opinion, for the Bills. He showed growth yet again. And, and this is where, you know, you look at some of the things that Allen's doing through the first four games of the year. And you always, or I always do, divide the season up into four-game stretches. If you go three and one in each four-game stretch, you end up at 12-4, and four, and anyone's going to probably sign up for 12-4. and four. So the Bills get through the first four games 4-0. Oh. Allen was 71% completion percentage. You wouldn't have thought that. You wouldn't have thought Allen was able to do that. But he was. There's also the fact that he's second in all of these categories. He's second in passing yards. He's over 1,300 passing yards to this point through four games. He almost had another 300-yard game in this one. 12 touchdowns, second to Russell Wilson. The one interception that still wasn't an interception, but it's still the only blemish on his card. He also has the three rushing touchdowns, picked up another one this week. His passer rating of 122.7 is second. This is a guy who's gone from the offseason, in his coach's words, the biggest question mark or concern going into the year to legitimate MVP candidate. Now, again, we're only a quarter away through the games. There's so much, th- so much that needs to happen before we can have a legitimate candidate for MVP or coach of the year. But you look at some of the things that Allen's doing, the aggressiveness, the patience in the pocket. Early on, Josh Allen would leave clean pockets quite often. He's not doing that nearly as much anymore. Yes, there's still the chaos with Josh occasionally. The play he hurt his shoulder on. He was a little late leaving the pocket and did so in a strange way. Made a play that if it was Patrick Mahomes, we would have been raving about it. But because it's Josh Allen, we get a little, oh, he's just got to stop doing that, stop playing hero ball. It's part of who he is, and frankly, I think it's always part of who he is. Go back to Jim Kelly, who's easily the greatest quarterback in Bill's history. One of the best attributes, in my opinion, Jim Kelly had was the fearlessness of which he played the position. He trusted his arm. He trusted his teammates. If he threw an interception, he was going to overcome it. He was a baller. He was going to go out there and play every down to its fullest. And I think Allen has the same trait, for better or for worse. He took a terrible sack in this game, a play 
that, quite frankly, as a, as a good quarterback, you don't make. You don't make that play. You throw the ball away, live to kick a field goal, hopefully, and, and help your team out. Allen didn't do that. He, he panicked, held the ball, retreated. It's a bad play. It's got to stop. He also was a victim of three drops. And if you think about it, he was 24 or 34, 288, two touchdowns with a rushing touchdown. At least three drops in that. So it's it's coming along in a way that I don't want to say consistency, but the expectations are now there for Josh Allen to throw for 300 yards every week. And frankly, for a good part of this game, as I was watching it, I was thinking he's going to have to go for 350, four touches, and carry the defense yet again. But I got to say, the wake-up call at halftime for the Bills' defense was about as necessary as anything that's happened this season. Josh Allen's improvement has been great. But this team is going to go where they go based on the strength of their defense. And the second half this week, and I think Josh Norman's play was a huge part of it. Him punching the ball out and recovering the fumble on Darren Waller was a fantastic moment in that game. Quentin Jefferson, the strip sack again, getting the ball back. All these things that the Bills did in the second half, I thought were a huge part of the story, and maybe every bit as big a part of the story as was Josh Allen. They limited Josh Jacobs to less than 50 yards rushing. Again, this is a guy, Jacobs, who comes in averaging close to 100 yards a game and providing a great second to Derek Carr's short passing game. Carr had a very good and very effective game. And, you know, as, as much as I'm raving about the Bills' defense, they basically went six quarters without forcing the punt. Can't happen. It's got to be better. Matt Milano's dinged up again. He needs to be in there because I think right now Matt Milano is the Bills' best defensive player. Tremaine Edmonds was much better this week than he was last, which to me was a good thing for a couple reasons. One, obviously the Bills need Edmonds. Two, it showed that maybe last week the injury was why he played as poorly as he did. There are other things that the Bills are doing really well. Brian Dable is getting a ton of credit, and he's going to be a head coach somewhere next year. Unfortunately, that won't be in Buffalo. Andre Roberts is a guy who I think is a luxury on a bad team, but an asset on a good team. The Bills are a good team. To have a guy be able to give them field position in the return game, the 38-yard punt return is just another facet of what's going on in Buffalo. Teams are going to start kicking away from them. And when you alter your your game plan because of your opponent's game plan, your opponent just got an advantage. Andre Roberts gives the Bills an advantage. Yes, they need a better pass rush. Yes, Tyler Bass is becoming a concern. His third missed extra point this year. Look, the the kid's young. He's new to the pros, but this is the easy part of being an NFL kicker. I mentioned the fans before. Is it is there any position less effect, or more affected by the lack of fans and kicking? You just go out there and kick. It's like practice. 
There is no 80,000 screaming down on you. So for Tyler Bass to be struggling now, it's very concerning to me. Also, Sean McDermott has got to be better in games with his game management. Look, I love Sean McDermott, and I'm going to play a clip in a second that shows how much respect he's getting. But there are some things that McDermott is doing and has done and continues to do that in that in a big playoff-type game you cannot do. Sean McDermott's challenge of the John Brown t- touchdown. Now, let's be honest. I thought that was a touchdown. You thought that was a touchdown. Everyone thought it was a touchdown. But here's why it was a bad challenge. Not because McDermott lost it and is now 3-17 and in his career in challenges. Yeah, 3-17. and That's, that's terrible. That's all-time historically bad. Here's why it's a bad challenge. If the Bills win, it's a touchdown. If the Bills lose the challenge, they lose a timeout, and they have the ball at the one-inch line. If you do nothing, you have the ball at the one-inch line. Why challenge that? To get your quarterback another passing touchdown? To get John Brown another touchdown? Look, it's not about personal stats. It's about winning football games. And any good football coach knows that. Sean McDermott certainly knows that. Why are you challenging a play that the worst-case scenario, you have a first and goal at the, at the inch line? You run four quarterback sneaks if you have to. Take two minutes off the clock. You're on the road and you're leading the game. Why are you challenging that? It made no sense. I've talked for three years on the radio, and, and, and now I continue to talk about it on a podcast, that any head coach – who doesn't have a retired NFL official or a retired college official, an official, somebody who has no passion for the team, no blood invested in the team, sitting in that booth looking at plays and telling them when to challenge. Any coach who doesn't do that is a fool. Because here's the thing. Sean McDermott's passionate about the Buffalo Bills. He's passionate about getting John Brown that touchdown or Josh Allen the touchdown pass. We all are. We all saw it. We all wanted a challenge. An official is going to look at a play through the eyes of an official, through the eyes of a rule book. You know, we all complain about officiating constantly. How many of us have ever read a rule book? How many of us have ever read a rule? I mean, we don't understand it that way. We know the game. We know the we know what's supposed to be, but the reality is The officials know the rules better. So when they're looking at something, and and believe me, I'll I'll criticize Al Riveron constantly because I don't understand how you can look at a play like Josh Allen's interception a couple weeks ago and not overturn that. I, I just, I can't comprehend that. But to have an official in your ear saying, don't challenge, rule is this, or they're not going to overturn it because of this. The value of that to a coach in the middle of a game with a thousand thoughts going on in his head, it's crazy how valuable that is. Now, I also understand this, that COVID has limited the number of coaches to be in the coach's box. So this year may be a bad year, and you may not be able to have that. But at the same time, There's got to be a way 
And I don't care if you've got a guy at home on his phone with a coach in the coach's box. What are you seeing? Challenge. Don't challenge. Technology has made it. You Yes, you should be in the coach's box where you can have direct conversation. But because of COVID, if you can't, there's still a way to take advantage of that asset. And it's foolish, again, for McDermott to not do that. If you're up, if you score a touchdown and you go up seven points in the second half of the game, you must go for two. The analytics say you go for two. And I'm not a big analytics guy, and I I understand why. But this is simple analytics. If you go for one and get it, you're now up eight points. Still a one-score game. Your opponent is going to go for two if they score to try to tie the game. If you go for one and get it, your opponent is going to kick their extra point and try to tie the game. If you're up seven and go for two and get it, it's a nine-point game, which means it's a two-possession game. Every time in the second half, you're up seven, you go for two. It's that simple. There are cards, charts, probabilities of when it's smart to go for things. This is another area Sean McDermott needs to get better. The most important area that I saw Sunday, and it was almost a horrifically bad situation. The end of the game, the Raiders score to make it a one-score game. They kick off an onside kick. The Bills recover. Game's going to be over. There's about a minute 50 left in that game. The Bills decide they're going to start handing it off. What are you doing? You take a knee. And I know there was a couple seconds doubt as to whether you just take a knee, you get 40 seconds on the play clock, take a knee, take a knee, take a knee. It's simple to have Allen back up a couple steps, maybe juke, then take a knee, to waste two or three extra seconds each play. And then the clock runs out and the game is over. The Bills, Allen got stepped on, almost fumbled a handoff to Singletary. It would have been disastrous. These are mistakes that a good coach cannot make. And Sean McDermott isn't a good coach. He's a great coach. But again, he's got to get better in these areas. These game management areas certainly got to get better. Now, I've criticized him for not being good enough in close games, game management. I want you to listen to the Good Morning Football crew, what Nick Burleson thinks about Sean McDermott. Nate, who do you want to give your game ball to? Nate, Peter, then Kyle. I want to give it to um, somebody who was the front runner in the coach of the year conversation, and that's Bill's head coach, Sean McDermott. He's coaching his butt off, man. It's, and it's everything from how that defense flies around to the evolution of Josh Allen and how fantastic that, 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 that quarterback is playing, given the fact that early in, this, in his career he was dropped back, a little frantic in the pocket. I'm going to be athletic. I'm going to hurdle over guys, try to run over dudes, stiff-arm individuals. And he still is sugar-high Josh Allen, as Kyle likes to call him. But he has grown. He has matured. We're talking knocking off 300-yard pass games like it's nothing. And he's in the MVP conversation. You know what else I like about this? They do what they do. The Bills made a move for Stephon Diggs, and it works now. 
But I mean, how many of us were like, is this really going to work? Well, they signed Josh Norman. And how many of us were like, is he really going to ball out? You see what he did yesterday? And how about just drafting Josh Allen? We were like, who? This, what? Where is he from? And everything is working. And these guys believe. So I'm going with McDermott right now, my front runner for coach of the year. Yeah, Sean McDermott, coach of the year. And frankly, I support that. I'm picking apart things that McDermott needs to be better at. But the reality is, you look at what he's done to get this team to where it is. The impact he's had on this team in so many ways. Yeah, I could see it. Who else is going to be the coach of the year? Andy Reid is going to be up there for sure. Pete Carroll, with what he's done, is going to be there. But right now... I think Sean McDermott and the way the Bills are playing, maybe Matt LaFleur and Green Bay as they're undefeated as well, certainly has to be considered. And you look at McDermott now. He's 29 and 23 as a member of the Bills. And, you know, all right, big deal. He's six games over 500. He's in year four. He's now been to the playoffs two times and trending towards a third and four times. That doesn't happen in Buffalo. To, to show you the point, his 29 wins are already tied for fourth in franchise history. He's tied with Wade Phillips for fourth. Marv Levy, of course, the all-time leader in wins with 112. But Lou Saban, at 68, is in second place. And Chuck Knox is in third place at 37. Now, I don't know that the Bills will win 12 games, but if they do, Sean McDermott's tied for the third most wins in Bill's history through four years. And if they do that, obviously, playoffs in three out of four years. And he took over a roster that was in salary cap hell and reworked the roster nearly 100% to get it to this point. He's done a great job. He continues to do a great job. But I think there are details, and I've said it for years, get yourself a game management coach. When to call a timeout, when not to call a timeout, when to take a knee, when to hand it off. All of these things that a coach who's focused on too many things isn't going to clearly think about. Whereas a game management coach who's only thinking of that is going to have a clear input into the coach's head to allow him to be better. So I I love what McDermott's doing. I think he still needs to improve and these games, these things may not matter in a regular season game, but certainly in a playoff game, when we saw it last year with the Texans game, McDermott needs to be better in big games if this team is going to go where they want to go. So that's good. Levi Wallace injury, McDermott saying he's week to week. Milano as well week to week. With Levi out, Josh Norman in, we already mentioned his impact. It's something that the Bills certainly need to get Levi Wallace back, but they're okay for now without him. Matt Milano is a different story. I said earlier in the podcast that I think Milano is their best defensive player right now. I think he is the most important player on that defense. Getting him back is certainly going to be hugely important. And There's one other thing I want to hit on with the Bills before I go on to the rest of the league. 
And it's the outside linebacker position opposite Matt Milano. In Milano, you know what I think of him. Tremaine Edmonds is still young, still developing. I'm hoping he's going to become the superstar he's drafted to be. Right now, though, he's a good middle linebacker. Problem is the third linebacker spot. And I know the Bills play a lot of nickel, so it's not huge. But with Milano out, it's it's certainly been a problem. A.J. Klein's just the guy. He's not a good linebacker. And he was exposed several times on Sunday against the Raiders. Terrell Dodson is a young player who's had some moments and good plays. I still don't count on him going forward. Now, Brandon Bean has been able to do some things throughout the last couple of years that we didn't think he'd be able to do. Getting draft picks for guys that he was going to cut. He's worked draft capital into a Stefan Diggs. He's been able to make moves we didn't think he was able to make. This year is a weird year. Teams don't have revenue. Teams are going to be out of it early on. There's a lot of opportunity, in my opinion, because of salary cap situations down the road, because of the way this year is playing out for teams, where there's going to be guys available to go get. And I think Brandon Bean needs to go get another linebacker. I'm not going to give you a name of somebody I think he should go get. But there are people and teams that would be willing to trade a starting linebacker for a third-round pick, something along those lines, and immediately it would fill a huge hole on the Bills' defense and give them some depth. Again, Milano's been digged. This could be the second game already this year. He misses. Having A.J. Klein replace him is not a recipe for success. Brandon Bean, I believe, is going to work the phones as hard as he can to try to get something done. I think this is an area, and I said it before the season, if there's one area with lack of depth, it's linebacker. The Bills need to get better, and I think Bean can help the team out with that. So that's the Bills portion. The NFL portion got very interesting yesterday. Bill O'Brien has been fired as the head coach and general manager of the Houston Texans. Their 0-4 start is certainly something that nobody expected. O'Brien is, in my opinion, a victim of two things, himself and his arrogance. And that's one thing, not two. It's one and one A. And an incredibly difficult schedule. They've played the Chiefs, the Ravens, the Steelers, and now the Vikings. Now, they, the Vikings, nobody's going to look at them and say, well, they're a great team. They won their first game of the season. But – if the Texans are one and three, is O'Brien still there? I want you again to listen to what's going on with Bill O'Brien because he got fired in part because of himself. Take a listen. Well, this really has been building over the last several weeks, and some of this MJ goes back to Bill O'Brien's relationship with Jack Easterby. Remember, he was brought in back to sort of a consultant for the Houston Texans, did a complete study of the football organization, ended up firing uh, Brian Gain, the former GM, also had a heavy hand in having Bill O'Brien install himself as the general manager. From what I understand, those two were not seeing on the same page over the last several weeks, despite being in lockstep as the team made several eye-popping moves over the last couple off-seasons. 
And then, of course, the team starts 0-4. And if you look at Bill O'Brien, he takes over play calling last game, did not seem to help. He's the head coach and the GM. Nowhere else to turn. Cal McNair decided to fire Bill O'Brien. Now Romeo Cornell in as the interim. Bill O'Brien was the most powerful head coach in the NFL, more so than Bill Belichick, because Belichick actually has a general manager, and it may be in title only, but O'Brien was the GM. O'Brien was negotiating contracts. He was the one making trades. They trade a guy like DeAndre Hopkins or Jadavian Clowney. They didn't get a first-round pick back for either of them. They, they get David Johnson back, and I think it was a third and a fifth for DeAndre Hopkins, who, in my opinion, is the best receiver in the league. And David Johnson's averaging almost 50 yards a game this year. This is a team that's very talented. However, a talented team needs to continually be restocked. It's like anything else. When you start losing players because of salary, because of attitude, because they get old, whatever the reason, you got to have somebody come in and replace them. The trades for Laramie Tunsil and the other things that they've done to just spend draft picks. This year, Miami has the Houston Texans' first and second round picks. Now, Romeo Cornell is going to take over. Jacksonville, Tennessee, Green Bay the next three weeks. I'm looking at one and six. Miami might have two top ten picks going forward because I could see this season spinning out of control badly for the Texans. I don't know how you end up taking a guy and putting him in charge of your entire organization. I get it that if you believe in a guy and if it's Belichick, all right, that's a little different. But Bill O'Brien... Other than what he did at Penn State after Paterno and getting Penn State back on the road back after the whole Sandusky thing, what's he ever done that you look at and go, that's remarkable? I mean, what he did at Penn State was fantastic. What he's done in the NFL, and, and by all accounts, this is a good man, has is, is been very pedestrian. And, and to elevate him to GM makes no sense. Brian Gain who's now back in Buffalo working with Brandon Bean, was doing a pretty good job of helping stock that roster. Lost the power struggle, and it moves on. So really, really big story there. And again, if you're a Dolphins fan, go Jacksonville, go Tennessee, go Green Bay, because the more picks the Dolphins get in that first round. Now, I could see the Dolphins doing something this year. They've got Tua. They believe he's their quarterback, but I could see the Dolphins doing something where they continue to trade back and move those picks to continue to build and and continue to have more additional draft picks. All of a sudden, you're looking at a team building a great amount of depth around their young quarterback. So uh, the Dolphins are going to be a benefactor of Bill O'Brien's mismanagement. Couple other things last night that doubleheader on Monday Night Football. Yeah, by the way, sign me up for that. That's fantastic. Last night was a couple really good games in that you got to see great quarterback play. Aaron Rodgers is playing the position about as well as he ever has. 
he's got a calm about him that you don't always see with Rodgers. Seems to be smiling a lot more, having fun. Whatever is going on in Green Bay, they got the NFC Championship game last year. This year they're undefeated and they look better. They've got a two-headed monster running back. The offensive line's good. Doesn't matter who the receiver is. Last night, Devontae Adam, Adams was out. Lazard was out. Some Trunnion kid scores three touchdowns at the tight end position. Nobody ever heard of this kid before. But it, it's just showing that Aaron Rodgers is in complete control of that offense and the defense is good enough. Packers might be the best team in the NFC. And right now, I'd say they're the favorite to come out of the NFC in the playoffs. And then, of course, the game that was moved to Monday night, the Chiefs-Patriots. Mahomes wasn't great, but was certainly good enough. Brian Hoyer is not a starting quarterback in this league. Jared Stidham maybe is. Without Cam Newton, the Patriots are simply not good enough. But i got to throw again how great Belichick is. You don't have a quarterback. You don't have a running game. Sonny Michel was out with injury. Yet, you go into Kansas City, travel that day, all of the things that went on, and that defense of New England allows them to be in that game all the way through with no offensive help. Incredibly impressive. I know the Bills have a two-game lead in the AFC East. New England's not done. And the New England-Buffalo games, that's going to be a war. It's going to be a battle. And if Cam Newton's back, the Bills will have their hands full. So great job by Belichick last night. Carolina is playing really good football considering they don't have Christian McCaffrey. They don't have a ton of talent. Teddy Bridgewater, it's great to see a guy whose career was almost over because of a freak injury in that one. It's just crazy to me how good Carolina is playing. And, you know, Matt Rule was a guy who they paid a ton of money to get out of Baylor to go there. The guy wouldn't go to New York to coach the Jets a couple years ago, and turns out that that's probably a smart decision to not go to the Jets. But what he's done early on with this team to win a couple games, people had them penciled in at 3-13 and and possibly taking one of the quarterbacks in the draft in the first or second pick. They're looking like a team that you have to be ready to play every week. Joe Burrow got his first win of the of his NFL career. Joe Burrow said three straight 300-yard games, and I know people doubted Burrow coming into the league. 65.5% completion percentage, six touchdowns, two picks, and three straight 300-yard games on a bad Cincinnati team, team with an offensive line that's a sieve. Yeah, Joe Burrow looks like, He's the guy. So if you are somebody who roots for the Bengals, if you're that one person, I think you got something there. The Ravens bounce back like I thought they would. To see Lamar Jackson go 50 yards on the ground in the first half, that was fun to see. And Lamar, isn't. it's not surprising to me that he bounced back, but this is a very good Ravens team. They didn't look good against the Chiefs, but then again, who does? Keep an eye on them. They're still going to be there. That division now, I just talked about the Bengals. (laughs) You look at the Steelers with Big Ben getting healthy, the Ravens, and even the Browns, who I'm going to talk about next. 
really, really tough division and going to be fun to watch as it unpl- as it plays out. The Browns are 3-1, and one, and they're doing a good job with Kevin Stefanski of reshaping that offense. They, they are a run-first football team. How much are they a run-first football team? Well, against the pathetic Cowboys defense, and you know this is coming from a guy who's rooted for the team with the star on the hat for my entire life, and that's a long, long time. I've never seen a Cowboys defense that is worse than this year's defense. Never have I seen that in all of my years, and that's a lot of them. But the Browns, they decided in camp with Nick Chubb, with Kareem Hunt, with bringing in Jack Conklin and Jedrick Wills at the tackles, this is a team that can run the football. And by running the football, you take the heat off Baker Mayfield, allows bigger plays down the field to Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. They got Austin Hooper. David Njoku should come back this week. There's a lot of reasons this should be a run-first football game, football team. But what got me is you get 307 yards on the ground from the Cowboys. And think about that. That's as, that's as much of a team owning another team as you'll ever see in the NFL. You give up 300 yards rushing, you just became somebody's bitch. It's that simple. Oh, my God, did the Browns own the Cowboys. Horrible, horrible decisions, horrible effort, horrible execution, all of it. But the Browns controlled the line of scrimmage all day. 307 yards, they didn't have a 100-yard rush. Kareem Hunt was dinged going in. Nick Chubb gets dinged during the game. Their leading rusher was Dearness Johnson, who had 95 yards on 13 carries. Think everyone's going to try and pick him up in fantasy football this week? I know I am. It's just crazy. And, you know, the Cowboys, to say they had it coming maybe is strong. But Jerry Jones always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. He moved on from Jason Garrett. They moved on from the entire staff to an extent. They kept the offensive coordinator but you bring in Mike Nolan, and I want you to listen to Emmanuel Acco of Speak for Yourself on Fox. Talk about Jerry Jones and his decision-making. Jerry Jones, start hiring the most qualified and stop hiring your homeboys and stop letting your homeboys hire your homeboys. Who <laughs> is the Cowboys' defensive coordinator? I believe it's a man by the name of Mike Nolan, if I'm not mistaken. Mike Nolan, how does he know Cowboys head coach Mike McCarthy? Mike Nolan hired Mike McCarthy to be his OC when Mike Nolan was with the 49ers back in 06. The last time Mike Nolan was a DC, he finished 24th, 26th, 27th of the defensive coordinator. So, Mark, and that was in 2012, 2013. Marcellus, how in God's name does a man who hasn't been a defensive coordinator since 2012, and when he was a defensive coordinator in 2012, was god-awful. How is he now the defensive coordinator for the Cowboys? The same Cowboys who have the third uh, worst defense in the National Football League. Jerry Jones has built this whole Cowboys organization. No, I'm not done yet. (laughs) He built this whole Cowboys organization off nepotism and growth. Jason Garrett, last Cowboys head coach, son of a longtime scout, former Cowboys quarterback. Kellen Moore, offensive coordinator, former Cowboys quarterback. Start hiring people that actually should be there oh. instead of sitting here playing all these favorites. Maybe it wasn't Jason Garrett. 
you know, Mike McCarthy, I think, will get things straightened out in Dallas. Offensively, I still think what they're doing, they, they obviously can throw the ball. Dak Prescott's first quarterback in NFL history to have three straight 450-yard games. But to me, when your defense is that bad, you've got to run the football better. And I know the Leal Collins injury at right tackle. You lose Travis Frederick at center. Those are two huge losses on that offensive line. You add into that that Tyron Smith played his first game of the season on Sunday. It's just a recipe for disaster in the running game. There are a lot of reasons why this organization, culture, we heard it from Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean, culture, culture, culture. The culture in Dallas is all about Jerry Jones enabling players. It undermined Jason Garrett. It will continue to undermine Mike McCarthy. And I think this team, as long as Jerry Jones is around to enable the players and make bad decisions on assistant coaches, will never be the complete team that maybe some of their talent suggests they could be. So that's the football portion of today's podcast. We'll see what happens week five. Again, quarter of the season down now. We have an idea who's good and who's not. And it's, it's fun to look at and think what's going to happen going forward. Major League Baseball, now, the playoffs began yesterday for the division series. And it's kind of ironic that all four division series are matchups within the division. Yanks, Rays, Astros, A's, Braves, Marlins, Dodgers, Padres. They're all divisional matchups. So they're all teams that have played each other a bunch this year. They're out in the bubble, San Diego, L.A., playing in stadiums where the weather should be very good. But I got to throw this out there. After one day of the division series, you're in two ballparks, Dodger Stadium and Petco Park, that are traditional pitchers' parks. These are big ballparks, spacious, six home runs in each game yesterday. Major League Baseball has taken Titleist Pro V1s, put them in the center of a baseball and now the ball flies out because everyone wants to see home runs. It's great. I want to see home runs, too. Like when Clint Frazier hit his home run last night, it's a no-doubter off the bat, gone. Any stadium, any day, that's a home run. What I don't want to see is a guy who gets it off the end of the bat, and Giancarlo Stanton, as powerful as he is, that was off the end of the bat, and he wasn't sure he got it. And Kevin Kiermeyer gave a valiant effort. If that is a ball that was used four years ago, not the ball now, I think Kevin Kiermeyer puts that in his pocket, and the Yankees don't have a grand slam. You're bastardizing your game with the use of a ball that's much closer to a Super Bowl than it is a baseball. It's bad business. And I know everyone loves a home run, but I'm sorry. Four-hour, nine-to-seven games are not going to help your viewership. And the juice balls can only add to offense. It's bad enough now that offense is only about the home runs because the launch angles and analytics say strikeouts don't matter. I just don't like it. And, and I, I am baseball's target demographic. Well, maybe not their target demographic, but their leading demographic. If you're turning off the few people that are tuning in, you've got a problem. And I think Major League Baseball has a problem. Garrett Cole was good yesterday in game one. 
David Garcia goes today for the Yankees, and you know I'm going to throw this out there, and I, hopefully I'm proven dead wrong on this one. And let's see David Garcia pitch last year when Scranton came to Frontier Field. This is a prospect any Yankee fan and anyone who follows baseball has heard about for a long time. When I saw him, I knew he wasn't a big guy, but when I'm looking at him pitch and he's throwing 91, 92, I'm thinking, wow, this is weird. And I spoke to a beat writer from Scranton and said, is he off on his velocity? He said, nah, he could touch 95, but he's generally 92, 93, 94. He's more of a curveball pitcher. Well, Look, that'll always work in Major League Baseball. If you have control, if you can spot it. Greg Maddox didn't throw 100. He didn't need to. His control was perfect. But David Garcia doesn't always have that control. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things he struggled with coming up through. The spin rate and the curveball is very hot. But if you can't pinpoint it, you're going to have problems. So the Yankees tonight sending their young phenom out there in this game, I think is dangerous. And it's dangerous not only for this series, but going forward. When you throw a young kid into that situation, it's either high return or high failure. There's nothing in between. If he gives them five innings and three runs, perfect. Move on. But if not, you're sending a guy out, with Masahiro Tanaka following in game three, and again, there's no days off in these series. It's every day. You're sending a guy out that's likely to get sent home quite early, which means your bullpen has to come in. Last night, Garrett Cole at 97 pitches was taken out. I thought he should have gone out and thrown another inning and frankly was dealing. His last pitch of the night at 100 miles an hour was his best pitch of the night, in my opinion. I don't necessarily agree with the decision-making just going forward. Again, the Rays are a team that will make you pay. And I think against a young pitcher like Davey Garcia, they're going to make him throw pitches. They're going to make him throw strikes. And I think they're a team that could get to him early. And if it's a bullpen game for the Yankees in game two, I think that could have an effect later on in the series, because that bullpen, you're using them every night, you're going to have a problem. So, interesting game tonight with that one. Again, the Astros, Alex Bregman hit a home run yesterday. It was the third consecutive year on October 5th he's hit a home run. They've been there before. Korea is playing very well. They just seem to, to, to know how to win in October, and I know the cheating scandal and all the things that went along with it. I think we forget sometimes because of that, how many good players there are on this team. So the Astros, very impressive yet again, looking forward to the Braves Marlins series. Uh, I heard Donnie baseball yesterday on Dan Patrick. He is a great manager. And this is a team, this Marlins team that thinks they can. And I think sometimes that's more important than anything else, just thinking you can. The NBA Finals are going on, and actually now we have an NBA Finals. Lakers lead 2-1. to one. Jimmy Butler, Game 3, was huge. 40-point triple-double. 
still without Drogic, still without Bam Adebayo, both hoping to go tonight in game four. Obviously, this is the biggest part of the game. LeBron was good in game three again. But LeBron walked off before the game was over. And I'm sorry, you you just can't do that if you're LeBron James. It's one of those things that when you see it happen, you think, what the hell is he doing? The clock's ticking down. Somebody's got to sub in because you want to get to the locker room. Uh, Look, the biggest sin LeBron James has ever made, in my opinion, is that he's not Michael Jordan. That's the biggest complaint everyone has. Jordan's better. Okay. So LeBron's maybe the second best player of all time. Maybe third, maybe fourth. He's one of the top five players in the history of the NBA. I can't see anyone else that we put in that discussion walking off before the end of a game. I thought that was classless. I'd like to see tonight LeBron answer for that by his play. But more importantly, what I think the Lakers need to do is get Anthony Davis going. Davis, who's as talented as any player in the league, when I watch him, I wonder how he's not more dominant. But he's a much more passive individual than most of the great players are. And I think when you look at Anthony Davis, he needs to get going early. Got in foul trouble early last game, kind of took him out of his game, didn't score in the first half. He only ended up with five rebounds and 15 points. Five rebounds, you're seven feet tall. Sorry, you got to do better than that for me. I'd like to see him come out tonight and early on get involved set a tone, get the Laker defense the way it was the first two games of the series. And if Bam and or Drogic are back, this one might go seven. Because this Heat team, they are not going to back down from anybody. And I, I really enjoy watching them play basketball. Bob Gibson adds to our 2020 misery. Gibson passed away this week. I heard a great story of... Gibson, apparently the last home run he ever gave up was to Ken Oberkfell, uh, somebody like that, some no-name guy. Uh, Gibson, 10 years later, pitching in an old-timers game, that guy stepped in, and he hit him. That's Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson was a nasty son of a bitch, and he was one of the greatest players in the history of the game. Watching Bob Gibson as a little kid, was fun because he just every pitch was all out effort. Great pitcher, great big game pitcher, and the way he went about it, he was a nasty, nasty man. And I mean that in a good way. And again, now 2020 has taken Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock. It, it's just not not great to see my childhood heroes passing on so thoughts certainly with him bobby bowden has covid 19 90 years old the great legendary coach hopefully he's able to beat it and get back to health because he was one of the guys i always enjoyed hearing i mean how many interviews do you get the word dadgummit said in them bobby bowden made that like a word that was commonplace dadgummit minor league baseball players got the okay from the Supreme Court to carry on with their class action suit against Major League Baseball. I should say minor league players. 
This suit started in 2014. Minor league players earn, in some cases, less than $7,500 per year, which is far less than the minimum wage, far less than any livable wage, but it's an illegal wage to be paid. With this lawsuit getting the okay to continue on by the Supreme Court, with baseball already contracting minor league baseball, I have a real concern for the future of minor league baseball. And, of course, we here in Rochester have the Red Wings. I think they'll be okay. I would guess that the Batavia New York Penn League team, the Mud, Do- Mud, Mud Dogs, Muck Dogs are going to be a thing of the past. I just don't know where baseball goes with all of the issues that they will have financially due to this year in, in a situation where they're already looking to save money. And the NHL draft is coming up this week. The Sabres have the eighth overall pick. Kevin Adams has a lot of decisions to make. There were trade rumors going on about Jack Eichel. Kevin Adams has said that he's open to trading. I would expect the Sabres to look to move down for a couple reasons. Financially, they won't have to pay as much to the rookie if they move down. So let's see where it goes from here. But this is the first big spotlight on the new Sabres GM, a guy that many people felt wasn't qualified for that position, was a strange hire immediately after another strange hire got let go. The Sabres organization is a disaster. Is Kevin Smith going, or Kevin Adams going to be the guy that's able to straighten it out? I don't know if he is. I don't know if he isn't. But I do know that with this draft, we're going to start to see the workings of how he goes about building the Sabres back into a team that their fans can actually respect. Because right now that is a lost, lost franchise that we have here in Western New York. Before we get out of here, i got to remind you about Instacart. If you click in the show notes, we'll give you your first Instacart delivery over $35 for free. Groceries in as fast as one hour. Simple. Go online, click, click, click. In as fast as an hour, your groceries show up at your house. You don't have to go to the store. don't have to deal with all of that. It's nice. Instacart and us will give you your first order over $35 for free if you click on the show notes. So that's Falcon around for this week. Appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Have a great week. We'll talk next Tuesday. Have a good one.